Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Hopefully you're having a great summer and you're enjoying time with your family and Praise the Lord for all the things that He may be doing in your life and in your church. And so today's podcast is going to ask the question, is there a significant difference between those of us who hold to Reformed theology and those who hold to a Arminian or traditional Southern Baptist or non-Calvinistic theology when it comes to defining God's sovereignty. I have found that this is a huge difference when discussing issues related to the nature of God. Uh, A few years ago, one of the first podcasts I did, I think it was back in the summer of 2015, I played an exchange between Frank Page, who is the president of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, and David Platt, who is now the president of the International Mission Board. Uh, Frank Page wrote a book against Calvinism. David Platt is a Calvinist, and they discussed the differences between sovereignty. And I remember just the exchange there and how uh, David Platt was arguing for the fact that God ordains all things that come to pass, that God is in meticulous control of all things. And Frank Page says, I disagree with that. Um, I don't think that I don't use the same terms you do. Um, I don't define sovereignty the way that you do. And so it was an interesting um, exchange. And so um, the Calvinist or the Reformed person would define God's sovereignty as God's absolute and meticulous sovereignty over all things that come to pass. The non-Calvinist, the Arminian, those that do not hold to Reformed theology, would define God sovereignly differently. They may say that it's God's influence, it's God's power, He can intervene in history when he wants to. He can, at times, override men's choices. But in no way is it actually a sovereign decree where God controls not only the ends of what happens, but also the means as well. And so there is a huge difference in how we define sovereignty. And a good place to start is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 3, on God's decree, paragraph 1, gives a very good definition of how we as Reformed theologians and Reformed um, scholars and those who hold to Reformed theology would subscribe to or define God's sovereignty. Here's what the confession says. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. This is what we hold to. This is what we believe the scripture teaches, that God decrees, God ordains unchangeably all things that come to pass. Now, non-Calvinists, traditional Southern Baptists, Arminians, 
they're going to affirm a different definition of sovereignty. They will use words like God permits, God intervenes, God overrides, but in no way is God in meticulous control over all things that come to pass unchangeably from eternity past. Now, what I want to do is I want to just interact with some writings and statements by some non-Calvinistic scholars, pastors, who deny the absolute meticulous sovereignty of God. And here's something that I've discovered. Um, I do a lot of interaction with traditional Southern Baptists. And in the past, I've tried to really helpfully define what they believe. And I, I keep saying they're not Arminian uh, they're, they're not Calvinists. They're something in between. But here's what I've come to discover. They are not Arminian in the sense that they believe you can lose your salvation, but they are more Arminian in many of their beliefs than I used to think they are. As a matter of fact, almost all of the statements that I've read by traditional Southern Baptists trace their idea of sovereignty, their idea of predestination, their idea to how God ordains things, really in the Arminian stream. It's not in the Calvinistic stream at all. It's, it's in an Arminian stream. Now, they may say that they're not from the Arminian stream, that this comes from um, Herschel Hobbes, and this comes from Adrian Rogers, and this comes from, um, you know, in the past 50 or 60 years. But really, when you boil it down, it is, when it comes to God's sovereignty, when it comes to God's predestination, I think traditional non-Calvinistic Southern Baptists are in fact Arminian leaning in those aspects. And so A.W. Tozer, who is not a Calvinist, and I don't think he was an Arminian, uh, great man of God. I mean, I I like a lot of what A.W. Tozer has written. I've been influenced by him as far as just the whole idea of, of, of seeking after God, of worship. He has a lot of great things to say. But in his, um, in his chapter on the sovereignty of God, he makes some very interesting statements about what he believes as far as God's sovereignty. And I think his statements have stuck with non-Calvinists and how they view sovereignty. So let's listen to A.W. Tozer. He says this, quote, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. The eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. Okay, so he does a pretty good balance here of protecting the sovereignty of God and protecting the libertarian free will of man. And so this is the argument of A.W. Tozer. This is the argument I think most traditional Southern Baptists and Arminians make, that God is sovereign. There's no one coercing God. God is in complete control. Uh, He's not beholden to the will of man per se. God makes choices unilaterally, but God has chosen in his sovereignty to bestow man with free will. So God is sovereign, but he has sovereignly chosen to give man libertarian free will. He also goes on to say this, quote, Certain things have been decreed by the free determination of God, and, on these, and one of these is the law of choice 
and consequences. God has decreed that all who willingly commit themselves to His Son, Jesus Christ, in obedience of faith, shall receive eternal life and become sons of God. He's also decreed that all who love darkness and continue in rebellion against the high authority of heaven shall remain in a state of spiritual alienation and suffer eternal death at last. Our choice is our own, but the consequences of the choice have already been determined by the sovereign will of God. And from this, there is no appeal. Okay, do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying certain things have been decreed by God. God has freely, sovereignly determined some things. And one of those things that God has sovereignly decreed is that man would have free choice. So God is sovereign, but he has sovereignly chosen to allow man to have libertarian free choice. Basically, he says you can choose what you want to choose. It's up to you. You have libertarian free choice, but the consequences of that choice have already been determined. So God has sovereignly set up the universe whereby he has sovereignly given you free choice. You make that choice and then you live with the choice that you make and that is sovereignly set. In other words, if you choose to accept Christ as Savior, the consequences are you go to heaven. If you reject Jesus, if you die in your sins, if you don't trust Christ for salvation, the sovereign decree is that you will go to, to hell. So the consequences have been determined, but the choices have not. So God only decrees the ends, but not the means, nor does God actually choose the actual persons individually. There's a sovereign decree of what will happen, if you use your libertarian free will, the consequence, the result of the choice is a fixed, unchangeable decree, but you're still free to make contrary choice. Once you make the choice, you have to live with the inviolable consequences of that choice. Again, I think this is admirable. I think he does a good job of protecting God's sovereignty. I think he affirms that God ordains some things that are unchangeable, that there are fixed consequences. It tries to harmonize God's sovereignty without, without having it be meticulous sovereignty. And so I think it's a noble task here that A.W. Tozer has done to try to balance the two. But I think he falls short. I, I think that he does not fully understand God's meticulous sovereignty over all things. And so this is what you're going to hear a lot from those that are non-Calvinists. God is sovereign. We don't deny God's sovereignty. We just define it differently. God is so sovereign that he gave man free choice in his sovereignty. That was God's decree, to give man free choice. So God's still sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he's chosen to give man free choice. That's A.W. Tozer. Let's talk about Jack Cottrell. Jack Cottrell is a leading Arminian He's from the Church of Christ. He's a leaning, leading Arminian scholar. He's written the Romans Commentary in the NIV Application Commentary series. He's also contributed a chapter in uh, Brobman and Holman's Academic Perspectives on Election, Five Views of Election. I recommend you get that book. It's very enlightening. Uh, he represents the classical Arminian view of election in that book. It's, it's published by uh, Brobman and Holman Academic it's called Perspectives on Election, Five Views. And so let's just interact with some of his statements because I think he really represents um, mainstream, popular Arminianism, 
um, and especially in his contribution to some of the NIV commentaries and, and just a leading contemporary Arminian. Jack Cottrell says this, quote, The most fundamental aspect of God's purposive will is that he has certain general purposes which he will infallibly accomplish through his sovereign power. Now, notice the key term there. He has some general purposes, which he will infallibly accomplish. Notice that it's not all things. It's not meticulous. It's not absolute sovereignty. It's general purposes. And so here's a question we've got to struggle with when when we hear the word general purposes. How do we know what are God's general purposes and what are God's meticulous purposes? Does the Bible itself make a distinction between the things that God generally ordains or the things that God meticulously ordains? Is there a distinction that the Bible makes? Let's just throw that question out there. In other words, here's the huge question. This is the question that we've got to struggle with. This is the, this is the fundamental question. Does Scripture clearly and explicitly affirm that God poses a limitation on his sovereignty. That's really the issue. Because what they're going to say is that God limits his sovereignty, God ordains general things, God intervenes at times. And so when you make those assertions that God limits or God gives general uh, purposes, you've got to ask the question, okay, does the scripture explicitly affirm that God does that? Does God limit his sovereignty? So let's just ask that question, throw it out there. We'll come back to it, but let's continue with some of his statements. Cottrell also continues. He says this, quote, God's permissive will, according to which God simply allows to happen most physical events produced by natural law and most decisions produced by free will beings, he may, of course, decide to prevent any planned or projected, or either any planned or projected event from happening. Okay, God allows most things to happen, and certain times God may prevent something from happening. So, in other words, there's no sovereign decree where God ordained all things that come to pass. God allows a lot of things to happen. He sits back. In his sovereignty, he allows things to happen. If there happens to be something that is going astray or he sees that there's something that he needs to intervene in, God, in course of time, could prevent a planned project. And he uses James as an example of this. James 4, 13-15. James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. Now, he would say that there are certain circumstances where you make a wrong decision or you're going down a course and God intervenes and God comes and overrides your will at certain times. But it's usually general. God usually allows things to happen. He limits his sovereignty. And in certain cases, God will intervene. Now, the language here is interesting. Most things, most decisions. uh, There may be those rare times when God prevents or intervenes or overrides human decisions or physical events. And again, 
how do we know this? Um, is this part of God's secret will? Uh, we know that God determines which events he may or may not prevent, but is there a scriptural warrant to see the wording in most cases? Or is it absolute? Is it in all cases? Again, that's the question. Does God absolutely ordain and meticulously ordain all things that come to pass? Does the scripture affirm that? Or does the scripture affirm that God um, does general things? God intervenes in limited ways. Most of the time he sits back and lets things kind of go their course and then at times he intervenes. Now, I'm not going to accuse them of deism because that is um, what the founding fathers and, and basically a philosophical view that God basically wound up the universe like a clock he created and he sits back and has no, no involvement at all in his creation. He just sits back and lets it go. Uh, that's deism. But I don't want to call this deism, but it's, it's an interesting philosophy that God sits back and God lets things happen the way they're supposed to happen, I guess. And then if something goes awry or something is not according to what he wants, he will then um, intervene. He will override. But that's rare. In most cases, God just permits things to happen. Okay, so that is Jack Cottrell. We've looked at A.W. Tozer. Let's talk about Jerry Walls and Do Joseph Dongle. Uh, they co-wrote the book, Why I Am Not a Calvinist. And I think it's an important book for you to read if you are a Calvinist. Uh, there's the, the counterpart book, Why I Am Not an Arminian, but it does clarify a lot of issues related to um, non-Calvinism. Non and so let's interact with some of their statements because I think if you put all these leading theologians, these leading Arminian-leaning, um, non-Calvinistic people together, you begin to see a pattern in their thought process on God's sovereignty. Here's what he says. Quote, We suspect that Calvinists, whether knowingly or otherwise, move across the stepping stones from God is perfect to God must be perfect in control. Two, perfect control requires determining every detail of reality. In similar fashion, we might step from God's will is perfect to God's will can never change to God will never adjust his actions in light of human behaviors. You notice what they're doing. They're saying that we as Calvinists make a leap. We leap from God's perfections or God's will to this idea that God is meticulously, sovereignly in control. He's absolutely controlled. He, he has an un, unchanged decree from eternity past. We, we, we make that leap, they say. And here's what they say. It's very interesting. It's very telling. Quote, In reading the Bible, we think it is important to refrain from immediately converting reports of God's specific actions into universal principles. The same caution in reading about God's actions in the realm of nature should hold in reading about God's influence in human beings. That is a hermeneutical principle that drives their theology. When you come across a passage of Scripture where it explicitly teaches God's specific action, don't universalize that. Don't make that into this happens in all cases and all times. Again, I don't understand how you can be consistent with that. 
you look at the scriptures and you say, okay, God acted in a certain way. That is God's plan. That is God's will. It flows from God's character. If God is unchanging, if God is um, powerful, then he acted in a certain way because it was his ordained decree. And so what they're saying is don't universalize that principle. Don't just say that that's the way God always does things. Don't say that that's the way God always acts. That was just a specific occasion where God decided to do that. Well, again, how do you know that that was the specific occasion that God decided to do it at that point and he's not going to do it again? Um, who's the arbiter of that? And again, they might say, well, we don't know. It's God's secret will. He can do whatever he wants. He's still sovereign. And so their idea is don't universalize principles from God's specific actions. And so what they will give, he gives the example of Psalm 135.6, which is a famous passage that we as Calvinists use to affirm God's absolute sovereignty. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Now listen to what they say about this verse, okay? This is what they comment on this verse, quote, this verse and others like it can be parlayed into total determinism only by presuming that God's will itself contains divine preferences for the movement of every molecule, for every electrical impulse, for every rustling leaf, for every human thought. In our judgment, the Bible strongly warrants seeing the world with its human story as yielding to the large-scale plan and purpose of God but not as being minutely controlled or determined by God. So they say, okay, yes, God's in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But don't absolutize that. Don't make that into determinism where God controls everything. God controls nature. God controls human decisions. Don't absolutize that passage of scripture into a principle that happens all the times. Yes, God can do whatever he pleases to do. He's sovereign, but let's not make that to where it, it, it moves into determinism where God ordains all things that come to pass. Now, interestingly, I just want to contrast their commentary with the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is a great catechism. It's very um, user-friendly, I guess you'd say. Um, it's very devotional. Um, question 27 and question 28 address the issue of the providence of God. So question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism, what do you mean by the providence of God? Well, here's the answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The Heidelberg Catechism affirms meticulous absolute sovereignty. Everything down to the most minute of molecule is governed, is upheld by God. And then notice question number 28. What advantage is it to us to know that God is created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Okay, how does this help us? Well, what's the good news about this? Well, here's the answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love 
since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Okay, so A.W. Tozer, God in his sovereignty has created a universe giving humans free will. Jack Cottrell, God limits his sovereignty in certain situations. It's more general. He intervenes at, at rare moments. Uh, Jerry Walls says don't absolutize those passages of Scripture that talk about God's sovereignty. That may be just a specific action at a point in time, but it, it's not the same in all cases. Um, so be careful not to do that. Let's talk about Roger Olson. Okay, Roger Olson is one of the leading Arminian scholars of our day. Um, he wrote the book Against Calvinism. Uh, a counterpart, Michael Horton, wrote uh, For Calvinism. And so let's interact with some of his views. Roger Olson. Um, he says this. In regards to God not having, having to manipulate or meticulously control future decisions of free people, uh, this is what he writes about that. He says, God does not have to manipulate them. He can simply predict them infallibly. Okay, so God has the ability to predict what humans are going to do infallibly. Now, I don't know about you, but I know Roger Olson disaffirms open theism. I know he's not an open theist, but it's almost like God knows kind of what's going to happen. He can predict what's going to happen, and that predictability is infallible. As opposed to having an ordained decree where God already knows what's going to happen because he ordained what's going to happen, God can predict what's going to happen. It's, it's confusing language. Let's, let's, um, this is an interesting quote that, that I thought was very telling and almost kind of shocked me for a moment. This is what he writes. But we, what we must not say is that the fall of Adam, which set off the whole history of sin and evil, was willed, planned, and rendered certain by God. God neither foreordained it, nor rendered it certain, and it was not part of His will except to reluctantly allow it. How do we know this? We know this because we know God's character through Jesus Christ. Now this is shocking on many levels. Do you hear what he's arguing here? God did not ordain or plan the fall of Adam. He reluctantly allowed it. In other words, God said, okay, I really don't want this to happen. I'm kind of like a reluctant parent. I'm going to let Adam make his own choices and live with them. And then I'm going to pick up the pieces afterwards and try to make the best of it that I can. But it's not really part of my plan. It was not an eternity past. I, I, I'm not really surprised by what Adam did. I'm going to reluctantly allow it. But it was not part of God's eternal decree to foreordain the fall. Now, this is problematic on many levels. How can Jesus be the Lamb of God foreknown before the foundation of the world if God did not ordain it, if God reluctantly allowed it? Listen to what Acts says. Acts 2, 22-23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Okay, think about this. If it was God's definite plan to have Jesus killed, it was God's foreordained plan, then you have to ask the question, why was it God's plan to have Jesus die if Adam and Eve, it was reluctantly allowed? Was was Jesus coming in the cross an afterthought? Was it something that God allowed to happen as a response to what happened with Adam and Eve? If God did not ordain the fall, then God would not have ordained Christ to come and die for sinners who needed salvation from the fall. Also in Acts 4, 27-28, For truly in this city there were gathered together your holy serv- against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was God's predestined plan to have Christ killed on the cross. If Adam and Eve reluctantly were allowed to fall and it wasn't part of God's foreordained plan, how can Jesus coming and dying on the cross be a predestined plan in eternity past? 1 Peter 1, 18-20 Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, the, the one that would come as the Lamb of God to redeem us was, was foreknown. So if Jesus... In coming as the Lamb of God to die for sinners, to bear God's wrath, the crucifixion, if all that was God's predestined plan, if all that was an eternity past part of God's decree, then God had to have ordained the fall because it makes no sense for Christ to have all of that preordained to come die. If sin was something that God just reluctantly allowed, it wasn't part of his decree, uh, I don't think Roger Olson would say God was surprised by what Adam and Eve did. Maybe some people would say, you know, God really took a chance. I mean, open theists say that. God took a chance. He's like a um, a parent that, that, that took a risk. He created Adam and Eve. He wasn't sure what they were going to do. Um, this is what John Eldridge in um, Wild at Heart teaches, that you know God's like a risky parent. He created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, didn't really know what they were going to do. Uh, they fell. God reluctantly allowed it. And then sin was brought into the world. And then, then after the fact, God said, okay, let's send Jesus to come die for sinners. But the scripture is very clear that God's plan in the cross, Christ being the Lamb of God, was a foreordained, predestined plan in eternity past. Also, think about individual predestination for us to salvation. How can God choose us? How can God predestine us in Christ to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world if the fall was something he had reluctantly allowed? Okay, election assumes fallenness. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4-5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay, notice the timing of the choosing. God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. God made the choice unconditionally to elect us 
before the world was even created, before Adam and Eve were even created, before Adam and Eve fell. But what were we elected? What were we chosen to be? Holy and blameless, adopted into his family, which assumes that if we are elected and predestined to be holy and blameless, we, at the time of our election, before the foundation of the world, were not viewed as holy and blameless. At the time of God's choosing, we were not holy and blameless. We were sinners in Adam. So the fall had to have been ordained that would cause us all to be sinful in order for God before time to predestine us to be holy and blameless. Uh, this is called infralapsarianism. Now, this is a big word that you know, Calvinists banter around, and uh, there's, there's superlapsarian and infralapsarian and all these different views. Um, lapsarian comes from the Latin word for lapse or the fall. So it's, you know, logically, how do you understand God's decree of predestination in regards to the fall of Adam? Most Calvinists are infralapsarian. Um, there's some high, very, um, what we you call high or, or, or extreme Calvinists that may hold to uh, different views. But let me just give you a definition of this. This comes from Bruce Ware. Um, he's the professor of systematic theology at Southern Seminary. Also in that book, Perspectives on Election, Five Views, his chapter is on uh, the divine election of salvation. It's, it's the, the mainstream Calvinistic view, the infralapsarian view. And so let me just give you his definition because I think it's helpful. He says, infralapsarian can be defined as this, God's gracious choice made in eternity past of those whom he would save by faith through the atoning death of his son, a choice which considered all of humanity as fallen, sinful, and guilty in Adam, fully deserving of eternal condemnation. Okay, so the choice of God for sinners to be saved in eternity past, this predestination, took into account them as already fallen. So all humanity was already in God's eyes fallen in need of redemption and God chooses many out of fallen humanity. So it's assumed that even in eternity past when God made that choice, the fall was already something that God had ordained. And so it's not something that God reluctantly allowed, took him by surprise, something that he didn't foreordain. Also think about this, Revelation 13:8, talking about the mark of the beast, the beast from the sea. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. That's the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay, before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created, the book of life had names in it of those whom God had predestined. How can there already be names written in the Lamb's book of life who will not worship the beast if the fall was reluctantly allowed and not ordained. Again, to say that the fall of Adam was not foreordained, it was not decreed, it was not God's part of God's plan, it was something he reluctantly allowed, is foreign language to those of us in Reformed theology. Now, here's one of his most telling statements from Roger Olson. Quote, So how might one deal with the reality of sin and evil in God's world without placing undue limits on God's power and sovereignty? Great question. Here's his answer. 
The only way is to posit what Scripture assumes. A divine self-limitation in relation to the world of moral freedom, including, especially, libertarian freedom. In other words, God allows His perfect will to be thwarted by His human creatures, whom He loves and respects enough not to control them. Notice the careful language that He uses. He says, Scripture assumes, Scripture assumes this, that God puts a self-limitation on His sovereignty. God, in His sovereignty, allows for libertarian freedom. He just comes right out and says that Scripture assumes this. This is an assumption that Scripture... Are, so, so Scripture from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, just assumes this. That God limits His sovereignty because He respects His creatures enough to give them, in His sovereignty, libertarian free will. But think about Job 42 too. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God can be thwarted. Now, Arminians may say, you know what, don't absolutize that verse. Yes, we know that God can do all things. We're not going to deny God's omnipotence. And we're not going to say that, you know, God's purposes can be thwarted, but that's not absolute. That's not in all cases. That was specifically for Job and how God dealt with Job. That's not an absolute statement. So don't make absolute principles from how God acted in history with Job. Uh, when Job says, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted, that was particular for Job. But don't, don't stretch that out to mean that, that, that God is in absolute sovereign control and no plan of his can be thwarted. Now listen to what else Roger Olson says, quote, Thus God does have two wills, but they are not the ones posited by Calvinism. God has a perfect will. Perfect here means what God truly wishes would happen. God's perfect will is that none perish. God also has a consequent will, consequent to creaturely rebellion. It is that He allows some freely to choose to perish, but His allowing is genuinely reluctant and not manipulative. It's interesting how often he uses the word reluctant, that God is reluctant. God reluctantly, in his sovereignty, allows this freedom. He has some things that he would like to happen. He really would like to see all people get saved. But he knows that in order to protect human free will, God can't determine that all people are saved, or God can't individually elect some to salvation and others passing over. God has to reluctantly allow people to make their own choices and deal with the choices that they make. God won't coerce. God doesn't have a sovereign decree whereby all things come to pass according to His sovereign um, control. God has to genuinely, reluctantly allow things to happen. Now, again, He asserts this. Does, and this is a good question. This is the question we would ask. Quote, doesn't this limit God's power and sovereignty? Okay, he, he, he answers the objection. He knows there's going to be an objection. When, when he makes this assertion, we as Calvinists are going to be like, time out, object. You're limiting God's power and sovereignty. You, you're, you're, you're making limitations upon that. And so he, he addresses that. Quote, doesn't this limit God's power and sovereignty? No, because God remains omnipotent. He could 
control everything and everyone if he chose to. For the sake of having real personal creatures who can freely choose to love him or not, God limits his control. Still, God is sovereign in the sense that nothing at all can happen that God does not allow. Nothing falls totally outside of God's supervening oversight and governance. He could exercise determinative control, but he's chosen not to do so. Again, God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is omnipotent, but he reluctantly chooses to allow freedom. He puts self-limitations upon his sovereignty. He has decided in his sovereignty not to control, not to ordain, but to allow things to happen. And at certain times, he can intervene, he can override. But for the most part, generally, God is hands-off. He's allowed his creatures to have freedom because he respects them so much. And they live with the choices that they make. Okay, that's basically non-Calvinistic definitions of sovereignty from their own words, from modern-day leading Arminian or non-Calvinistic theologians. Now, let's interact with some of these presuppositions, because all of us come with presuppositions to the text. And so, when you think about these words that God limits His sovereignty, God reluctantly allows, I think there's two um, overriding presuppositions that Arminians and non-Calvinists come to in relation to this. Number one, they would say necessity equals tyranny. Now, let me define what I mean by necessity equals tyranny. What they're saying is if God foreordains everything that comes to pass, then by that definition, by necessity, everything that comes to pass will infallibly come to pass. And if this is true, this must mean that we really have no real libertarian freedom. And therefore, because we have no libertarian freedom, we're not truly responsible for our actions because our actions are already ordained. So if God has decreed or foreordained all things that come to pass, then we really have no genuine contracausal freedom. And this renders God unjust because God is merely controlling us like a puppet master and we're only doing what God has ordained for us to do. So how can we be held responsible for that which God has already ordained. In other words, if, thing, if God has foreordained everything that comes to pass, that means God is a tyrant. God's a puppet master. God is basically not allowing us to have libertarian, contracausal free will. And they'll use terms like, you know, if, if this is what God is like, he's, he's like the devil, he's like a monster. Uh, we, we can't worship a God who is meticulously in control of all things. If God doesn't give us free will. If God doesn't reluctantly allow us to have free will, then obviously um, he's a tyrant. And number two is presupposition. I think that they look at this innate sense of freedom that we somehow feel that we have that's more a philosophical assumption that basically libertarian free will is just assumed to be true. It, it, it's just assumed it must be true. I make choices every day. 
Um, I, I can choose what clothes to wear. I can choose what job I want to have. I can choose uh, what car to drive. I can choose what restaurant to go to. I genuinely make choices. And so therefore, libertarian, contracausal, free will, I, 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 I deal with it day by day intuitively. It must just be the way the universe works. But here's the bottom line for the Arminian view of God's sovereignty. God does not deal with his creation in a deterministic way of divine decree. He may intervene at times. He may use persuasive means to get people's attention. But God will never control. God will never manipulate. God will never foreordain human decisions. But here's the conclusion. Human decision is logically prior to and determinative of God's will and decree. They reverse the order. In other words, human decision-making is in the driver's seat and God responds to that. God reluctantly allows that. God puts limitations on that. In other words, what we're saying here is that instead of starting from the standpoint of God and His sovereign decree and God foreordaining all things that come to pass, God meticulously being in control of all things, being what the Scripture affirms, and then moving out from that to understand genuine human freedom, they start with freedom must be true. We have freedom. We have contracausal free will. And therefore, God must have limited His sovereignty in order to give us this free will. So let's ask the question again. Let's just ask the question again. Here's the $10 million question in relation to this topic. Is there any explicit scripture that teaches that God ordained to create a world whereby he gave free will to his creatures and thus limited his sovereignty in most cases, but will intervene and override in very special circumstances? Is that the overall testimony of scripture? Or let's ask it another way. Does the testimony of Scripture clearly teach that God meticulously and sovereignly decrees everything that comes to pass in a comprehensive and absolute sense? I believe that God has sovereignly, absolutely, meticulously ordained all things that come to pass. I do not see any explicit passage in the scriptures that teaches that somehow God limits his sovereignty. And there'd be plenty of opportunities for that to happen, where you have these statements about the nature of God and what he does. And remember what Jerry Wall says, don't, don't take those and absolutize them. Don't make those into absolute principles. Just deal with them in that particular passage and, and don't, don't look at it as, as this is the way God always operates. I need to be able to understand the scriptures and the fact that if God does something and God acts in a certain way, that God is always going to do what's in line with his nature and his character. God is unchangeable. God does not respond. God does not react. God does not adjust based upon passively taking in knowledge from his creation and trying to work things out. God sovereignly from eternity past has made his decrees. 1 Samuel 2, 6-7, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. 
Acts 17.26 He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling and place. Even where you live today, even what race or nationality or ethnicity is because God determined it. God determined it. It is part of God's sovereign decree. Even down to the casting of lots. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, I want to interact with a leading traditional Southern Baptist who um, I respect highly. We've had a lot of engagements. That's Leighton Flowers. Um, on his website, he's got Calvinistic proof text to, to deal with sovereignty, and I want to deal with some of his statements. Um, Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Um, he says this, again, this verse does not support Calvinism because it says man wills things in his heart. The fact that God's counsel overrules man's will is not a defense of Calvinism. Those that the Calvinists call, usually falsely Arminians, believe this as well. Again, notice what he says, God at times can overrule man's will. Uh, Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, this is God's sovereignty not only over nations, but over all the inhabitants of the earth. And when God determines to do something or God has a sovereign decree, no one can say to him, God, why did you do that? In other words, God can sovereignly, meticulously deal with his creation in any way he wants to. Leighton Flowers says, This statement was made by King Nebuchadnezzar after he was punished by God, and his reason had returned to him and had repented of his pride. This verse is simply stating that God is God, and he rules ultimately over the affairs of men. The verse says nothing about whether or not man can accept or reject the gospel, about whether God's grace is resistible. It says nothing about whether God sovereignly chooses some men to election and some to reprobation. For a sinner to refuse to repent is not to stay God's hand, because God's eternal program rolls right on regardless of what individual men do in these or any other matters. Now, I'm not arguing that that passage of Scripture is talking about salvation. I'm not arguing that that passage of Scripture teaches the doctrine of individual election. What I'm saying is that passage teaches God's meticulous sovereignty over all things and that no plan of His can be thwarted. You can't talk back to God. This is God's sovereign decree. Now, one of the famous passages of Scripture that he likes to deal with a lot is Psalm 115, verse 3. And we talked about this with Jerry Walls when Jerry Walls says, don't absolutize that. Uh, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Listen to what Leighton Flowers says. We definitely believe that God does whatever He pleases, and we bless His name, that what He pleases is always righteous and good. Further, God has revealed His pleasure in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures tell us it was His pleasure to send Jesus to die so that whoever believes on Him should not perish. One only needs to read verse 16 of the same song to see what God is pleased to do. Okay, so we would say as Calvinists, God has sovereign control over all things, nobody stays his hand. Nobody can coerce him from the outside. He does what he pleases to do. He's absolutely sovereign. And then they will say, okay, look at verse 16. Because verse 16 proves in that same psalm that God limits his sovereignty. That God has chosen to give us free will. So let's just read Psalm 115.16 and ask the question, does that give the answer to 
the question or to the issue that God limits his sovereignty. Psalm 115, 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he's given to the children of man. Okay. The earth he's given to the children of man. What they will immediately say is, aha, there you see it. God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases, but it pleases God to limit his freedom and to give humans libertarian free will. There it is in the text. We know what God pleases to do. Whatever God pleases to do, he does. And we know what God pleases to do. He pleases to limit his sovereignty and to give human beings libertarian contracausal free will. He's given the earth to the children of man. Now, let me just ask a question. Does giving the earth to the children of man equate in any way to God limiting his sovereignty and endowing every person with libertarian free will? What is that text teaching? Back in Genesis chapter 1, there was the creation mandate from creation. And it was to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth as God's good stewards of his creation. I think in the context of Genesis 1, and in the context of the psalm, when God says he's given the earth to the children of man, in other words, God has created us to live as good stewards in the earth, to multiply, to go forth and proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth from the original mandate that was given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. This is not a proof text at all for God choosing to limit his sovereignty, God being pleased to give man a libertarian free will. It's just not there in the text. Okay? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no, no, no else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Here's what he says, that God's counsel shall stand and he will do all his pleasure is not to say that no actions of men, no errands can come to pass otherwise, and God is eternally purposed. He's quoting A.W. Pink. For God to allow something and ultimately to work the thing into his overall program for the ages is not the same as purposing it. God's counsel is revealed in Scripture, and there we learn that God has given man a will that he can exercise against God. We see this in the Garden of Eden, in the case of Adam, and Eve's firstborn Cain, in the case of the world before the flood, in the case of the Tower of Babel, in the case of Israel before the coming of Christ, in the case of Israel during the earthly days of Christ, in the case of all sinners today and throughout history. For God to allow something and ultimately to work that thing into his overall program is not the same as purposing it. Again, notice what he's saying. God allows this. It comes from Jack Cottrell. God reluctantly allowed the fall. God limits his freedom. God will intervene at times. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about is that I believe the Scripture affirms without ambiguity that God is sovereign over all things. So, the Arminian, let's ask you, does Scripture affirm without ambiguity that God has decided either to limit or relinquish his sovereignty in order to make room for libertarian free will? Does Scripture explicitly affirm this limitation? Or is it a philosophical as well as an intuitive assumption or presupposition that non-Calvinists bring to the table? In other words, can we see one verse where it says God is sovereign 
Over all things, his purpose is going to stand. No plan of this can be thwarted. No one can stay his hand. Um, Don't talk back to the potter and tell him what to do. Oh, but by the way, that's true, but God limits his sovereignty and he reluctantly allows you to go your own way. Can we see one verse where it says that God limits his sovereignty or are all the scriptures affirming his absolute and meticulous sovereignty at all times and in all situations that flow from his divine decree that he made before the foundation of the world all the way back into eternity. Now, let's talk about Ecclesiastes chapter 3 because I brought this up one time with Leighton Flowers in a discussion that didn't, get reco- that didn't get recorded, unfortunately. And I said, have you ever dealt with Ecclesiastes? That's a pr- and he said, that's a pretty obscure passage of Scripture to argue from. Well, okay, um, obscure. Ecclesiastes is Scripture. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Let's just let the inspired preacher, Solomon, tell us about God's meticulous sovereignty. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Okay. <laughs> Solomon makes this pronouncement. God is absolutely and particularly sovereign over everything. Notice the repetition of the word every, everything under heaven. Uh, there's nothing in this universe that is not under God's sovereign control. And the word time he uses there in the Hebrew means appropriate time, God's foreordained time, God's appointed time. In other words, there's nothing random in the world that happens because God sovereignly and meticulously governs everything, even time itself. Things in this life happen at His appointed and ordained time. Now, in order to illustrate this, Solomon could have given us some cold, hard facts about God's sovereignty, but he doesn't do that. He he goes into some poetry where he lists these um, 14 pairs of polar opposites that add up to 28 that goes into this whole idea of everything that we as human beings experience. Now, it's not a comprehensive list that Solomon gives us, but it's pretty representative of of everything that you would experience. Uh, The first issue is birth and death. Okay, sovereignly, did you ordain the time of your birth, the place of your birth, your parents, or was that ordained by God? Are you sovereign over your death? Psalm 139 tells us, go back and read Psalm 139 about God being sovereign over your birth before you're even born. Psalm 39, 4-5, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands before you as a mere breath. Job 14.5, Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, you have appointed his limits he cannot pass. That's meticulous sovereignty in the book of Job. God has determined your days. God has determined your months. He's appointed limits as you cannot pass. God knows exactly when you're going to die. God controls all of these things. 
And so there's just this comprehensive list of everything that you could experience in the human life that God here is meticulously and sovereignly in control of. He's in control of it. He ordains it. He's foreordained all these things. They're ordained by God. There's a fixed, there's a right appointed time for all these events to happen in our lives. But I want you to keep reading. In verses 13 and 14, Solomon gives a theological explanation. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what is driven away. Okay, what is Solomon saying here? Solomon is saying that God's plans and actions endure forever. You can't add to what God does. You can't subtract to what God does. God has a sovereign decree over all aspects of your life from your birth to your death to every action in between to how nations interact together how you as an individual act together even over your salvation he's absolutely sovereignly in control psalm 33 8 through 11 let all the earth fear the lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Daniel 2.21 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Romans 11, 33-36 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I've heard in conversations I've had, with non-Calvinists to say, well, that don't absolutize that. That doesn't mean that all things, when, when Paul is talking about all things coming from him and to him, that's just kind of a, a hyperbolic way of, of worship. Okay. But let's just take the passage straight at face value. Paul's saying, listen, God's ways are unsearchable. God's ways are inscrutable. God in eternity past has fixed these, or, or these decrees. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Can you tell God what to do, how to operate the universe? Is there any way you can pay back God? No. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. In other words, every single thing that comes to pass, as Ecclesiastes would say, Everything in your life from death to birth to your eternal salvation to your eternal destiny comes from God, through God, for God. God is meticulously, sovereignly in control of all things. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works out all things according to the counsel of His will. God works out all things. God ordains all things. God decrees all things according to the counsel of His will. Not once will you find 
in a passage of Scripture explicitly taught that God limits His sovereignty, that God reluctantly allows people to have libertarian free will, it is an assumption brought to the Scriptures that is not explicitly taught. And so there is a vast difference between how we as Reformed people define God's sovereignty and how non-Calvinists define sovereignty. So when you're talking about sovereignty, we need to make sure we're talking about the same issue because for us, sovereignty is God's eternal decree whereby He unchangeably and sovereignly and meticulously ordains all things that come to pass. He's absolutely sovereign. Either God is sovereign or He's not. And He's sovereign in all cases or He's not. The non-Calvinists, the Arminian, the traditional Southern Baptists, they're going to argue that God is sovereign. And God is so sovereign that He limits His sovereignty in order to reluctantly allow humans to have libertarian free will. And God may persuade, God may intervene at times, God may override human decisions, but ultimately, in general... God is hands-off, and He allows humans to make the choices that He has sovereignly set up, not the choices they would make, but the consequences of those choices. And as Tozer said, a God less of and would be afraid to do that. So there's your difference. So you've got to be the judge and jury. What does the Scripture affirm explicitly about God's sovereignty? Which side do you fall on? Well, hopefully this has been a helpful podcast in delineating the differences between what we view as sovereignty. And so if you're having a conversation or you're in a Facebook dialogue or you're, you're talking to somebody, you may be like ships passing in the night because you're defining sovereignty in a different way. So it's important to define your terms. And even a term like sovereignty, um, we just make assumptions that this is what we believe sovereignty is, and we assume that everybody believes that. And so it's important to, to lay your cards out and define your terms when it comes to that word the sovereignty of God. Well, may God bless you. May God keep you. May God cause His face to shine upon you. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.